The cool thing is we don't need to go to Cambodia to shine bright for Jesus Christ and to walk in his will. There, It's his will that some would go, some his will that some would send, and today we're going to be talking about his will. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 21, it's really an in, intriguing uh, topic, the will of God, because there's aspects of God's will that are revealed. We can know what's righteous and holy based upon what God has already said. Those things are established and set, and, and God does things that are beyond our ability to comprehend, where he does something that we, from a human standpoint, doesn't seem right, but it's righteous because God has ordained it and done it. And even as his will is set as far as holiness goes and righteousness, yet the, the way his will looks for each of our lives can be different. He can direct us to do different things and put a conviction on our heart that he hasn't put on someone else's. I'm always struck by the words Jesus spoke in the Garden of Gethsemane as the cross loomed before him and he said, not my will, but yours be done. So he, being God, he still was a man and he had a will of his own. There's always that tension between our will and God's will as far as are we willing to submit to God's will in a situation, in a circumstance, to do the thing that pleases him. And it's a good place when we're at at that place where we are surrendered to the will of God, not throwing up our hands in frustration, not giving up, but obeying him in faith because we believe this is the will of God for my life. And the ability to please God or to want to please him comes from him. It says that in Philippians 2.13, that he works in us both to will and do of his good pleasure. So it's not out of the goodness of our hearts that we would do God's will, but he, as he works in us, he enables us to do that. Would you say that most of the time when we question God's will, it has to do with circumstances that are situational and personal? Like, what is the right job for me? What's a good career or a school for my future? Uh, should I be married or not? Uh, what's, like, how should I make a financial investment? Or what's the right thing for me to do? And we can almost approach God's will like you would go to a, a fortune teller or a palm reader. And you want to get a sign? You want to get something concrete? So you actually don't have to trust God in what he's already said. So you're like, all right, well, this is settled, and and I don't have to think about it. I don't have to worry anymore. Well, that should come from faith in God, not just because someone said something, right? As we seek the Lord and we step out in faith and obedience to his word, his will will become apparent, maybe just in the next step, as in the life of Paul. But what we're going to see in the word today that Paul was led by the Spirit, and there were other people that were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they didn't always agree. Well-intentioned people kept telling Paul, Paul, don't go up to Jerusalem. But he was bound in the Spirit to go up to Jerusalem. Not everyone was supportive of the direction where he believed God was calling him to go. And that shows us that well-intentioned believers can be wrong and hey, guess what? We can be that well-intentioned believer who can be wrong, but praise God, his will is perfect. And even when we make a mistake, he can redeem it for his glory. So praise the Lord for that. He enables us to stand complete in his will. Let's pray and thank the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you are overall. You are. You have all authority and all power. And 
you only do wondrous things. Thank you for this time to gather and to open your word, Lord. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit and give us ears to hear and hearts to comprehend what you're saying to each one of us. Thank you for revealing your will and for being found by us, that you, we didn't love you first, but you loved us, and you have revealed yourself to us. And I pray that you would uh, show us your glory today, even as you showed Moses, that we'd draw near to you and you would draw near to us. Father, we pray that in this place and at this time that you would do a mighty work in our hearts. You would quicken us, Lord, to rejoice and to praise and to thank you for how awesome you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 21 begins with Paul's return to Jerusalem. He's been away for about four years on his third missionary journey, visiting established churches, primarily in Asia Minor. He spent a good time in Ephesus, and it says that through that ministry, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And he's returning to Jerusalem with a financial gift that was gathered up from the churches that had heard the believers in Jerusalem were doing it tough. And so they were rejoicing to, hey, we want to give to the church in Jerusalem. And he returned with that gift. And last week we discussed an address with the elders of Ephesus that he wasn't able to go to them, but he said, hey, meet me in route. They met him and he gave this discourse about, hey, I don't know what's what's going to happen, but I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. And everywhere I go, the Holy Spirit's saying that there's imprisonment and chains in my future, that there's going to be trouble. Don't know what it's going to look like, how it's going to go down, but that's what I'm heading towards. And, and he said, I am not going to see you anymore. So it grieved them that they would be parting, seeing each other for the last time. And this is the them that's referred to in verse 1. So let's pick that up together in Acts 21, verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Cos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there was the ship to unload her cargo. Paul, Luke, the author, others sailed south to Kos, Rhodes, Patera, and Tyre. And as usual, you can turn to the back of your Bibles if you want to see what that looks like. And you can see on your map Paul's third missionary journey, how he traveled south. And uh, I'll give you a second just to refresh your memory. What's really cool about the Bible is that it does have maps in it because it's actually historical events that took place. That and, and how he says we passed Cyprus on the left. That's how it is in real life. When you sail south, Cyprus will be on your left. And it just shows that the Bible is authentic. It's true to Nate. It's true to the world in which we live. It's not made up. It's not make believe. It's true. So he's heading down. We see him going to Tyre. Acts 21 verse 4. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our own way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. Paul and his companions arrived in Tyre. It said that they found disciples. This suggests that they were looking for disciples, right? They were seeking out disciples of Jesus. And I love the simplicity of it. They weren't looking for groups of a particular denomination or background. 
They were just looking for disciples, people who follow Jesus. I really find that lovely, that that's really the defining factor. With all the various denominations and traditions that have established today, have you found that you can hold negative associations with other groups? Because we tend to measure ourselves or compare ourselves with others citing the differences rather than the similarities, the negatives, rather than, oh yeah, they believe this and they believe that. It's different than what I believe. That's why I'm going to focus on that thing, right? Have you found that? You're like, if they say they're this, automatically you can think, well, I know your doctrine that you don't believe this and you don't believe in that. Therefore, I'm going to put you down a notch in my spiritual respect, right? You're really, you still got a ways to go yet. God forbid that we would be so proud. But hey, that's uh, our natural bent, isn't it? To to measure ourselves or or judge others because of differences. Not being rejoicing that these are disciples. These are people that are following Jesus. They love him and they trust him. And so we're one in Christ. And there was a sense of unity there. And they stayed seven days. It's really a healthy perspective if we examine ourselves and say, am I a disciple of Jesus? Am I a disciple in word and deed? If Paul was passing through this place, would he find a disciple in me? Would he recognize that I follow Jesus? I don't just talk about Jesus. I don't just go to church, but I'm following Jesus. It says he remained with those disciples for seven days. And in verse 4, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Acts 10, I mean 20, in his address to the Ephesians, he said, there's going to be chains and imprisonment awaiting me, but I'm not going to be moved because I'm bound to obey what God has told me. And because this Holy Spirit does not contradict himself, the Holy Spirit does not say to Paul, Paul, go up to Jerusalem. And then to those believers in Tyre, Paul is not to go up to Jerusalem. This contradiction it's clearly not of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself, even as he will not and cannot contradict Scripture, being his word, this is the word of God, it's likely the Holy Spirit revealed what awaited Paul, and out of a human compassion and pity for him, they said, because we believe that this is the truth, don't go up. Reconsider this for your own sake because they believed they heard from the Lord, and indeed they had heard from God. But their interpretation is that he shouldn't go. Paul was determined, though, to go. Is it possible to receive a divine revelation from God and then respond like an ordinary human being? Jonah did that. There was no question about God's will in Jonah's life. God told him where to go, and he even told him what to say. It was a simple message. He knew where Nineveh was, and he said, No, I'm going the exact opposite way. Revelation from God revealed the the will of God and the word of God to him, but he chose to disregard that. And we can do the same thing. We can get the right message, but have the wrong interpretation or response to that message. So they received a word from the Lord, I'm convinced, those believers in Tyre. They have the right message, but they from that, they extrapolated, well, don't go. But God was not telling him this to deter him from Jerusalem, but to prepare him. 
he was preparing him to go, what awaited him. And it was quite a, a great example that in the face of imprisonment and bonds and suffering, he chose to go anyway, knowing full well what awaited him because he was willing to pay that price to obey God. And the question is, am I willing to pay a price to obey God? Or when the standing in the will of God is going to cost me or going to hurt me, am I going to move aside from that? At the end of the seven days, there's this touching scene. It says, they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Paul's intent on continuing on, but the disciples and their whole families go, and they they bring them down to the shore. I love that they don't ditch him because they had a disagreement about what he should do. They weren't, I mean, they said, don't go. And Paul's like, hey, I'm going. And they didn't say, well, okay, fine. You heard the word of the Lord and you're back and you're not willing to listen. They went with him. They loved him. And they spent that time together. Their hearts were knit together. And when you live together for seven days, you learn a bit about that person, don't you think? Let me encourage you, when you find disciples of Jesus, Create opportunities for your lives to mix together, to be intersecting a lot. Because this will be such an encouragement, strengthening fellowship with the Lord and with one another. Have that happen outside of church, outside of church services. And in all activities, praying is so appropriate. And so they prayed together. They knelt down on the beach. And it was quite a scene, very touching that they would... uh they would all go. I think about when we take someone to the airport. Like I'm like, Laura's like, oh, I'm taking, you know, Drew to the station. I'm like, okay, good. I'll say goodbye at the door. I don't go all the way to the station with him. Or maybe sometimes I do, but, you know, it'd be like going into the lounge in the airport, taking him all the way in. The whole family. You don't have to, but you want to. And that's the kind of love that we ought to show as, as fellow followers of Jesus going beyond what we have to do. Acts 21.7, And when we finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. Paul comes to Caesarea. They met and stayed in the house of Philip the Evangelist. He was a man, we heard earlier, described as a man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. He was one of the seven who were chosen to wait on tables to minister to the Greek widows who were being neglected in Jerusalem. After the stoning of Stephen, Philip went to preach the gospel in Samaria. And in the midst of this massive revival, the Lord leads him to go into the desert towards Gaza. He heads towards Gaza alone, and he runs into the Ethiopian eunuch who was returning to Ethiopia from Israel, from Jerusalem. And he he speaks with the man, He's invited into the chariot. He's born again through preaching Jesus. He baptizes him, and it says that the, the eunuch came out of the water and went away on his way rejoicing. But Acts 8.40 says, But Philip was found at Azotus, 
and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So Caesarea was the place where Philip put down roots. We see he had a house there. As it says, it was his house that they stayed at with his four daughters who were uh, gifted in prophecy. I think, wow, isn't that what we all desire as parents with children, that our kids would be filled with the Spirit and have spiritual gifts? Now, we're not told specifically of any particular prophecies they gave at this time. Verse 10, it speaks of a certain prophet named Agabus, whom we've heard about before. He had um, spoken previously about a famine that would happen, which did. He came from Judea. And this shows that a prophet, the role of a prophet, shouldn't be reserved just for the Old Testament. Because there have been self-proclaimed prophets or false prophets, it does not mean the prophet, the, the office of a prophet or a call to be gifted in prophecy is only through, uh, like only for times past. The standard of 100% accuracy for prophets that's laid down in Deuteronomy 18 uh, verses 18 through 22, that's the same. If you speak presumptuously, you're not to heed that person anymore. Uh, if there's any, just to clarify any doubt, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, if you want to turn there, we'll see that this is not just for the church of the first century. There's no time limit on this. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 30. <clears throat> It says, now you are the body of Christ and members individually, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? God has appointed different roles in the body of Christ, the church. All are not apostles. All are not prophets or teachers. The implication is God does call some to those offices. And Agabus was a recognized prophet. He was someone who had spoken predictively in the past. It had come true. That's in Acts 11. So he takes the belt, and really like a prophet of old, he does like an object lesson with it. And it was quite a large belt. Because it sounds, it says that he tied it around his own hands and feet. And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. This word confirmed what the Holy Spirit had said over and over again. A little bit more specific that the Jews were going to bind him and he would be delivered into the Gentiles. The text tells us that he had come from Judea, so there was no collusion. He hadn't heard it through the grapevine of what was going to happen. The Holy Spirit had revealed it to him. The Holy Spirit had told Paul what awaited him, and all those believers as he went along the way. They all were saying the same thing. It's comforting to know there's one Holy Spirit, and he always speaks the truth. It will always be in agreement with his word. Now, there's no verse in Scripture that Paul read that said, After your third missionary journey, you will be arrested and imprisoned, right? There was no scripture in the Old Testament that he turned to and go, oh, there's my name. Oh, it's about me. No. Now, maybe the Lord had confirmed some way through his word, but it had been confirmed again and again by fellow disciples 
that this indeed was going to happen. And we see it was ultimately fulfilled. God will provide a witness through his word and also in our hearts uh, that what is being said is the truth. And if you have any doubt, time will bear it out. It will be seen. We may not see it, but we can trust the Lord and his word. Acts 21.12. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we see saying, The will of the Lord be done. When they saw Agabus say this, it says everyone there, including Luke, they're like, please do not go up to Jerusalem because what's awaiting you? With tears, they're crying. I mean, this was really serious. He says, guys, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Why are you making this really hard for me? You're making it difficult. I'm not going to be deterred. I don't mind to be incarcerated for Christ or bound for Christ or even to die for Christ. I'm willing to do it, and I'm bound in the Spirit to do so. And at a point, they left off trying to persuade him. They go, you know what? He says what he means, and he means what he says. If he says he's going up, we've told him. We've told him what's going to happen. The will of the Lord be done. Remember when Jesus prayed in Matthew 6.10, he spoke to his Father in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This committing of our future into the hands of the Lord and acknowledging that he is in charge. He is in control and that we can trust him regardless of of what we feel like or what the circumstances try to dictate to us. That word, thelema, it means determination, choice, or inclination. So that's what will is translated. It's this word, thelema. Interestingly, there's an occult religion called Thelema, and the the fundamental precept is do what you want. Do what you will. Whatever you want, do it. The only rule is there is no rule. That's basically the tenet of that belief system. But Jesus, he bowed and submitted to the will of the Father. He went to the cross. He came to the earth knowing what the will of God was, and he was going to walk in obedience to it. Even though the cross loomed before him, he knew that his hour had come, and yet he went because he knew that God is good and righteous and he would be raised up. We also can submit to God's will by rejoicing, by determining that God's will and the things that he allows are good and right, even if they hurt, even if they don't seem the way that we would want it to go down. Guzik, as usual, he has a great quote attributed to Chambers. He says, To choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. So Paul's no masochist. He's not looking to suffer. He's not looking for opportunities. How can I... You know, like it was about him. He was going to prove himself how how dedicated or diligent it was. It wasn't about him. He was obeying God. And even if it meant suffering to be in the will of God, he was willing to be there. And that should mark us as well. 
There's many things that God allows that are contrary to his will, like sin, right? Is sin God's will? No. Death, the result of sin, that's not God's will. God's not willing that any should perish, yet he allows things to account uh, to occur and can even redeem them. Like Jesus, he died for the sins of the world. He died, but through his death, all people can be saved if they'll repent and trust in him. So he redeemed even something wicked and awful, like the death of God's only begotten son. And he redeemed it for something glorious and good, for his glory and for our um, salvation. God is miraculous. He is amazing. Picking up in 15, after these days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain um, Manassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. They left Caesarea, Paul and his companions. They went to Jerusalem and they were accompanied by disciples from Caesarea. So they didn't part on the beach like in Tyre, but they went with him. And they brought with them an early disciple. And that kind of means an older guy. But he had been a, a disciple since the beginning. An early disciple named Manasson from Cyprus, the same as Barnabas. And they lodged with him. This is the only verse in the whole Bible about this guy, Manasson. He was hospitable. He helped Paul and his companions in time of need. And I love that the Bible mentions Agabus, the prophet. But he also mentions this early disciple who was hospitable. They're both worthy to be remembered because they were done for the glory of God. And God's called some to give that word of knowledge or that word of wisdom. But he's also called others to be hospitable and to open their homes. And one's not better than the other. They're both glorious when we are doing so with the heart of faith and love of great value. When they arrived at Jerusalem, though not mentioned specifically, this is probably when he handed over that gift from the churches in Asia Minor. He was received by the brethren. James was there, the brother of Christ. Um, the elders were there as well. Paul does not crow about his accomplishments. Notice how it's written. He told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. It's about what God had done. God had done marvelous things. Paul had been greatly used by God, but God got all the credit for it. He transferred all the glory and all the honor to God. And when the elders heard of the Jews and Gentiles, see how they responded. They glorified the Lord. They also gave glory to God. Continuing in the second part of verse 20. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. 
during the time when Paul was away, there was this false rumor spread about him that damaged his witness among the Christian Jews. People heard that Paul had been going among the Jews in these Gentile regions and saying, forsake the law of Moses. Don't circumcise your children. In fact, it would be wrong to do so. And they they thought he was bad-mouthing the law, that Jews should not follow it anymore, that he was undermining the word of God that they followed and adhered to. This, of course, was not true. Though Jew and Gentile have the same Savior, and Lord, it's important to realize there are cultural and religious backgrounds that we have that impact our response to the gospel. Most of us came to Jesus from a secular background. That, that's my background. I don't know about all of you, but few of us have come from an Orthodox Jewish background and come to Christ. Most of us have come to him from a culture that does not honor God or uh, really honor his word with decisions, right? We could say that. We feel, as Gentiles, privileged by grace not to be under the the very uh, overwhelming requirements of the law, right? If we came to Christ and you had to keep all these 600-plus laws, do's and don'ts, go up on the feast days, look, whoa, whoa, that's a pretty tall order to try to follow that. We came to God in, by grace, and we're thinking, wow, how what a blessing is to not be burdened unnecessarily with all these, the shadow of what is the substance in Christ. We feel privileged by grace, but the Jews felt privileged to keep the law. The law had been given to them by God. Them and their forefathers had followed it carefully all the way through. It had been passed down for thousands of years. This passage shows us that when Jews became Christians, they didn't treat the law like we'd treat a jacket on a hot day and go, oh, so glad to be rid of that. Oh, so much I don't have to do now. What am I going to do with my time? I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. That's not their approach at all. They delighted to keep the law. As believers, as Christians, there was great joy, benefit, and belonging in following Jesus and keeping the law as given to Moses. Observing the law for them was not a burden. It was a blessing. It was their identity. It was part of who they were. And they were not willing to just throw it aside so lightly. Now, do you think less of people due to uh, tradition or personal conviction who adopt aspects of the law of Moses or because they don't? I remember when I was a kid, I was really surprised. My dad and I went to uh, one of the elders, one of the board members' house, and, and he was mowing the lawn on a Sunday. And I, as a kid, I was like, whoa, that, he's like breaking the Sabbath day. I was a bit stumbled by that because I didn't understand uh, the grace that we have in God. Because at our house, we honored God by saying, we're going to get all of our yard work done on a Saturday. My dad wouldn't work for money outside the house on a Sunday. So we wanted all that stuff out of the way so we'd have time to go to church. That was a priority in our house, and that's something I've adopted going on, saying, when I worked in a trade, I don't do work on Sunday, just to honor God. Not because I'm claiming righteousness according to the law, but because this is a conviction that God's put upon my heart, a way that I can honor him, not to say, look how righteous I am, but a way to show God is a priority in my life. More than money, more than having maybe the promotion, I honor God. I want to. And this is a way that I can do that. 
Some Christians, they are compelled by the Spirit to tithe to the church. Some are not. Some give more, some give less. We're each to seek the will of God for ourselves and to rejoice in what he's told us, not to judge others negatively because they exercise their liberty or because they seek to follow God's word and a law that he has given. In uh, Matthew Henry's commentary, he says, of these Christians, he says, they believe in Christ as the true Messiah, but they know that the law of Moses was of God. They found spiritual benefit from the institutions of it, and therefore they can by no means think of parting with it. This was a great weakness to be so fond of the shadows when the substance was come. But see the power of education and long usage, and especially of a ceremonial law. The charitable allowance must be made in consideration of these. Giving grace, that's what we have received in coming to Christ. We need to give people grace as well, whether or not they follow the the law as we think it should. We need to give that sort of freedom to others. Now, there is uh, established righteousness, as we'll see. We should not fudge on holiness to try to please man, but we ought to be righteous and upright. These rumblings in the church against Paul, they were unfounded, and the elders say, hey, we have a plan to make sure that everyone realizes that you're 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 still on our side. You're not because it was hindering his witness among the Jews. He himself he continued to observe the law of Moses. Paul, when he could, he went up to the the feasts in Jerusalem. We see that he made a vow at one point, so he was still keeping the law in the sight of the Jews. He could go in and he wouldn't be disfellowshipped by the Jews to walk into the synagogue because he kept the law of Moses. He knew it and he followed it. And to support his, to demonstrate his support for Jewish customs, they said, we've got four guys who are going to, they've given a vow and they need a sponsor. Help with paying this expensive, because uh, it costs money to, to buy the animals for the sacrifice. You put down that money towards that sacrifice and that'll show everybody that you are still, a, you're, you're not against the law, that you're, on, the, on our team, so to speak. The burning question a lot of Christians and commentators ask is, well, was Paul right to go along with the suggestion of the elders here? Well, at a point that's, that's really actually beside the point, Paul had submitted to the will of God in going to Jerusalem, and he was submitting to the authority of the elders in Jerusalem. They weren't asking him to do anything heretical. They were. He was just saying, okay, that's fine. I'm happy to do that. It's no trouble for me to, to walk in truth before God and man. It wasn't any hypocrisy. He wasn't being a chameleon to try to just please people. He was, this was in keeping with what he believed. He didn't keep the law to be righteous or manipulative, but in obedience to the leading of the Spirit. And the elders continued to clarify, as we see in verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. The elders reiterated their guidance toward the Gentiles remained unchanged. They were not telling the Gentiles that they needed to keep the law. That's not the purpose of this uh, 
demonstration. Their Acts 15 judgment remained clear. The relevant issues the Gentiles faced was very different than the ceremonial laws that governed the Jews, the feast days and keeping a kosher diet. The provision in Acts 15 for the Gentiles was to keep from stumbling Jews in their region. These were deal breakers. If a Jew knew that a Gentile was in any of these ways sinning, they were not going to have any contact with them whatsoever. But the Gentiles were glad to say, man, I'm not under the whole law, but if I observe these things, I can have an open door of ministry even to Jews. I won't be stumbling them. And we can spread the gospel so we can win them. And uh, they were glad to have these guidelines to not unnecessarily offend. So they weren't giving the Gentiles a new law, you know, the four laws of Gentiles. No, the Holy Spirit will lead us in righteousness and truth. Fornication, yes, that's a sin. Um, Worshipping idols, yes, that's a sin. But some of these have the appearance of sin, like things offered to idols. Paul talked about that in another place. You know, an idol is nothing. I'm not defiled if I eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. But that stumbles some people. So to avoid stumbling them, I'm not going to eat that meat. I won't eat meat at all if that's if this is going to be a stumbling block towards someone else. Paul sponsored, he agreed to sponsor and purified, was purified with these men. It was not, again, to show the Gentiles were now required to keep the law, but supportive of Jews who did. Such grace that they showed to the Jew and the Gentile, didn't they? And so he supplied their needs for what they need in the temple. Next week we'll read about what happened as he did this. Could you please turn to 1 Corinthians 9? starting in verse 19, which sheds some light on Paul's perspective, so maybe some of his thought process that he's thinking about as he was doing these things. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Paul was not an independent or someone you could say he was his own man. He was God's man. There's a big difference between being your own man and being God's man. And Paul was God's man. He's like, I am his bondservant. I am his slave. I have not just pledged allegiance to him, but I am giving my life to follow him and to obey him. 1 Corinthians 9.19 For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law, to those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Paul was free of all men because he was a slave to Christ. That's how he was able to to serve him, is because he was already a slave to Christ, so therefore he was not under man. If Paul was a non-Jew, trying to win Jews by keeping the law, it would not have carried the weight. The fact is, he was a Jew. Jewish born, Jewish raised. 
And so he had this open door of opportunity to minister to the Jewish folks whom he knew their law, he knew their ways, he knew their mindset, and he was able to approach them in a way that was uh, very effective. God has given you a ministry. He has placed you in a family. He has put you in a culture. He's established you among people where God wants to use you so that you might win people to Jesus. God has opened doors in your life that are closed to me and closed to other people. But he can use you. And the thing is, he's not limited by your history either. He's not limited by your background because God used Paul to minister to Gentiles. And so he became, as a Gentile, he adopted some of their culture or he ate some of their food. You know, can you imagine going to a Gentile's house and being really finicky about exactly how was this meat prepared? You know, was it bled properly? And did a rabbi see it? And you go through this whole thing. He's like, hey, I eat what's set before me. So he wasn't going to make that distinction. But if he was with a Jew, he would be mindful of their mindset and the things that would stumble them. So he's being very gracious towards others. He didn't have to pledge allegiance to the Jews or allegiance to the Gentiles, like pick one or the other, to minister to them. I've seen people in their zeal to minister to a group of people where God's put them who become quite cold and indifferent and even hostile towards the group that they've come from because they're so focused on ministering this one group. Well, Paul didn't do that. He was Christ's slave. He chose to follow him in obedience. And should God move you to the CBD, or I wouldn't live in the CBD, well, should he move you to the CBD, you don't have to talk bad about the suburbs. And should God move you from the CBD out to the country, you don't have to go, oh, it's so good to get away from that rat race, and, you know, so busy, and always having to talk bad about it. You don't have to do that. You can be the same person in a suit or a straw hat as you follow Jesus. And you can minister to those people as he leads you. He'll help you to do that. But Paul wasn't just trying to be everyone's friend. He was seeking to win people for Jesus. That's why he did that. That was his motive. He just didn't want to fit in. wasn't trying to be popular. He wanted to win people for the Savior. And I love how God, he opens up doors of opportunities for, you know, somebody who is an ex-convict to minister in the prisons. And people who've never been to prison can visit and make a difference in a prison for Jesus. That God can use a Pharisee, an ex-Pharisee tent maker, to preach to Gentile governors. God's not limited by us. He can use a rapper to bring the gospel to a corporate executive. And he use a Gentile to save a Jew. God is not limited by us. But he wants to use you. And our tendency is to say, well, well, I can do this and I can do that. Well, without him, we can do nothing. So let's let him open those doors and walk through boldly. And, and we don't have to limit our scope by our history. Because God has something he wants to do in and through your life. So what's God's call for you? What's his will for your life? You might be called as one who is sent as an apostle or a prophet to teach or be hospitable or all of the above. Uh, but God's will really isn't a secret. We're called to love one another, to forgive each other, 
to make disciples of all nations. And as Jesus chose to be a servant of all, we too ought to be a servant of all. And that we might, by all means, save some. Now, a word of caution, we shouldn't be deceived that embracing sin could be justified if our aim is to save people. Like getting drunk with the boys so we can share the gospel with them. Or, uh, you know, fornicating with a girl because you want her to be saved. We shouldn't be going down a path of immorality and justifying immorality, saying, well, Paul used all means. Well, not immoral means. He used righteous means, God-honoring means to bring the gospel to others. And if you're, if you're unsure about what God's will for you, I encourage you to take the next step in obedience to the, the will that he's already revealed in his word, to love one another, to forgive, to be obedient. Let's fulfill 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. It says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in every give, everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is the will of Jesus for you, that in everything you would give thanks. And I want to just encourage you to think about something. Is there something in your life that you have been just asking God would end or stop? Have you thanked him for that thing? Because it says in everything give thanks. This is God's will for you. In your weakness to thank him. In your abundance to thank him. Even in times of confusion to thank him. Because he is worthy to be praised and honored. Praise him. Thank him. Rejoice evermore. Rejoice even in that troubling thing. Yes. Because of who he is. And that we serve him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are an awesome God. And you have sent Jesus to be our Savior and the great grace you have given us, Lord. You haven't loaded us down with laws, but you've given us your love. And that you have redeemed us from the power of sin and Satan and hell, and you've given us new life that we can live here, there, and everywhere for your glory. And I pray that we'd be even as Paul, Lord, that we could be free from all men. We wouldn't be um, easily swayed by the opinions of men. But Lord, we would be bound in the Spirit to be obedient to you, to walk humbly before our God, to uh, walk uh, in a holy manner that pleases you. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I thank you for those who... Uh, it was a challenge even to get here today. And I pray, Lord, that we would be those thankful, grateful children who realize everything that we are and everything we have and our glorious future in heaven, it's all because of you and your goodness toward us. Lord, I pray that you would minister your word to our hearts. You continue to remind us of these things, that we would be those rejoicing, praying, praising people who do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.